We'll hear argument now, number 94372, Donna Ishalela versus Margaret White Cotton. Mr. Gorenstein. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case arises under the Vaccine Injury Act and involves the interpretation of two related provisions. The first creates a presumption that a vaccine has caused a child's condition when the first symptom or manifestation of the onset of that condition occurs within a specified period after the administration of a vaccine. The second permits the Secretary to rebut the presumption of, of causation by showing that the child's condition is due to factors unrelated to the vaccine. Our position is that the Court of Appeal erred in its interpretation of each of these provisions. Let me start with the statutory presumption in Section 300AA11, which appears in page 2 of our brief. The Court of Appeals interpreted the requirement that the first symptom or manifestation of onset must occur in the statutory period to mean that a presumption of causation will arise whenever any manifestation of a covered condition occurs after the administration of a vaccine, even if that condition has already manifested itself beforehand. So, under the Court of Appeals' decision, if a child has very clear manifestations of, of a serious brain injury and then has a vaccine and then another manifestation of the same condition, under the Court of Appeals' decision, there will be a presumption that the vaccine caused the onset of the child's condition. And we think that interpretation is incorrect for two reasons. First, it is inconsistent with the use of the statutory terms first and onset. When a condition has already manifested itself prior to the administration of a vaccine, any manifestation of that same condition that occurs after the administration of the vaccine cannot be first and it cannot be a manifestation of onset. The very terms first symptom or manifestation of onset necessarily imply the absence of any pre-existing symptom or manifestation of that same condition. The second reason that we think the Court of Appeals erred in its interpretation is that its interpretation fails to take into account the fact that Congress specifically addressed cases where conditions had already manifested themselves prior to the administration of a vaccine through the significant aggravation presumption. Under Section 300AA11, there is a separate presumption of causation when the first symptom or manifestation of a significant aggravation of a pre-existing condition occurs within the statutory period. We think the clear import of that separate presumption is that when a condition has already manifested itself prior to the administration of the vaccine, a presumption that the vaccine has something to do with the child's condition can only arise when that pre-existing condition has gotten worse after the administration of the vaccine. So under a simple and straightforward reading of the statutory language, the simple existence of a symptom or manifestation of a covered condition in the statutory period is never enough by itself to trigger the presumption that the vaccine has caused the child's condition. In addition, it must either be the case that there's no pre-existing symptom or manifestation of that condition or the child's condition has gotten markedly worse afterwards. By holding, the Court of Appeals holding, that the existence of a symptom or manifestation of a condition in the statutory period is sufficient by itself to trigger the statutory presumption, we think the Court of Appeals clearly erred. Mr. Gorenstein, if we had only the language that was in that table and not the statutory language, wouldn't there be more of a case for the opposite interpretation? Justice Ginsburg, I think even if we were just looking at that table language, and that appears, by the way, at page 4 of our brief, and says time period for first symptom or manifestation of onset or a significant aggravation after vaccine administration, there would be more of a case, but I still think you would come to the same conclusion. 
because the words first are still used in relation to the term onset. And I think when a condition has manifested itself prior to vaccine administration, anything that comes after that cannot be the first manifestation of onset. Even trying to give some meaning to the word first in the table period is difficult given the way the Court of Appeals interpreted the, the, that phrase. Because if Congress had set out to do what the Court of Appeals thought it set, had done, it wouldn't have need to, needed to use the word first at all. It could have just said any symptom uh, after vaccine administration, because any symptom is always first in relation to what came at, comes after the statutory period. The only real reason to use the word first is to make clear that you're talking about first in relation to what came before the statutory period. But whatever ambiguity you have when you just look at this language, I think that the, the, the bigger problem with what the Court of Appeals did is that it looked here at all. Because the purpose of the vaccine injury table is not to set out what the claimant is required to show in order to trigger the statutory presumption. It's, it's set out to show the time period in which the claimant has to make that showing. Isn't the term first uh, somewhat superfluous with the term onset? Well, I think you have first symptom or manifestation of onset or significant aggravation. So first doesn't modify onset in your view? I think it, it, it does modify onset, yes, but I think it's just first symptom or manifestation. It's somewhat superfluous, I would agree, but I think it makes it more clear it describes a relationship between first and onset. So I think that that is the basic mistake, is in looking to the vaccine injury table, because what under, under Section 300AA13, it tells you that compensation is appropriate when the petitioner has demonstrated the matters in 300AA11. And 300AA11 is the part of the statute we're relying on, which is very clear, and I believe even the Court of Appeals acknowledged that when you look at 300AA11, it's very clear that, that the claimant has to show, in effect, the first of all manifestations. Mr. Uh, Gorenstein, if we were to agree with you on the interpretation of the statute on, as to question one in the third petition, uh, do we need to read the, reach the question of the standards under uh, question two as posed in the third petition? You do not. Um, we have presented both, both questions because we think that in this case, one or the other has to be uh, sufficient. There are two independent grounds, and either one will do. The respondent uh, spends a good deal of time discussing how uh, the district court uh, might have reached the wrong conclusion on the facts here. Uh, I assume all of those matters are open on remand. We would agree that those matters are open on remand. Okay. If, if there are no further questions on the first... I have one. What, what was the first symptom? The, the first symptom or manifestation was the abnormally small head size at birth, which was uh, the, the special master found was a uh, positive indication that this child was already had a very serious brain injury. The second clear manifestation occurred at between three and four months, and that was the, that the fact that she fell further behind on the growth chart in head size. Um, and so that was the, uh, also, the special master said, a, 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 man, a manifestation that she had a pre-existing brain injury, serious brain injury. Is there any question in the record, just as an evidentiary matter, uh, that the head size can be treated uh, as a cause uh, of the brain injury? I, I would say it's not the head size it's the that's the cause. It is the abnormally small brain that is the cause of the injury, and it is the abnormally small head size that tells you you have an abnormally small brain. And sometimes the term microcephaly is, is used to refer to both of those things. Uh, but what you have is an abnormally small head size that tells you you have an abnormally small brain, and that's what the special master found. So there's no question, there's no there's no question about the evidentiary basis for that relationship. No. If we therefore reverse, there's not going to be a fight over what the evidence shows. 
Well, I, the, the other side may have a different view of, on whether the kind of the head size here was sufficiently indicative of an abnormally small brain, the kind of abnormally small brain that would result in the conditions. And that was the dispute that was had at trial. The special master resolved that uh, by finding that there was uh, sufficient evidence that it was so abnormally small as to indicate uh, abnormally small brain that and give case, rise to these, these conditions. You say there's no question about the evidentiary basis for that finding. I think that's clearly supportable in, in, in the evidence. The Court of Appeals did not disturb the special master's findings on that. And in, in answer to uh, Justice O'Connor's question, I was simply saying that that is open on remand for, for them to argue that there is something wrong with that finding. We don't think there is. So is that the difference in the two briefs? You refer to a scientific term and the, um, the plaintiffs refer to small head, not conceding that that was any kind of uh, symptom of any malady. Is that, is that what the dispute I think that's the factual dispute. That the, the head, they would agree, I believe, that at some point the head size is so small as to let you know uh, that there is a real problem and that brain injury has already occurred. Um, but I, I, they'll have to speak for themselves on that issue, but I think what they would say is it wasn't small enough, and that the special master heard conflicting evidence about that and concluded that it was. And it also concluded, really, the main dispute was at birth, uh, but there was really no — what was even clearer evidence is the further fall-off below the second percentile that it occurred between the third and fourth month. Uh, even the, their expert agreed that that was an indication that some serious brain injury had occurred at three months, or no later than, than three months, and could have occurred at birth. Well, let, let me ask you, and, and perhaps this will bring you to your second point. Uh, it, was it the um, hearing examiner's theory, or is it, is it the government's theory, that the uh, ultimate condition, uh, the encephalopathy, was related to the microcephalopathy? Yes. That's right, that, that the abnormally small brain led to the, the difficulties that this child later experienced in life, including mental retardation and cerebral palsy. That these are, in, in fact, children with microcephaly, over 90 percent turn out to have, um, men, are, are mentally retarded. There's only a small percentage that are not. And, and is that the reason, or... Perhaps there are other reasons. Is that the reason that the ultimate condition is not idiopathic? The, the reason that the ultimate condition is, is non-idiopathic is that we, we take a different view of what that term means than did the Court of Appeals. We think that when you, what not idiopathic rules out is, is the Secretary saying something like, we know we have evidence that the vaccine did not cause the child's condition but we have no idea what did. Um, the Court of Appeals took that one step further back and said, even if we can identify a factor that caused the child's condition, we then have to go back and show what caused that factor, effectively re requiring a dual layer of causation. So it wasn't enough for the government to show that the small brain, uh, abnormally small brain led to the child's condition unless the government can then go back and show what caused the child to have a, a small, abnormally small brain size in the first place. So are you saying that you can concede that the microcephalopathy is idiopathic in the sense that we don't know what caused it, but that you still prevail? In that's, the that's right, because I think idiopathic within the meaning of the statute Simply, it describes a situation where the secretary says, I have no idea, the vaccine couldn't have caused it. I have no idea what did. That's not this case. The secretary is saying, we know what caused the, uh, the, the child's condition. It is the pre-existing microcephaly or abnormally small brain. We just don't know what caused that. So, so idiopathic depends on the question we're asking. I, that, that's exactly right. And I think that you, to resolve that ambiguity, I think you should go back to uh, the, the core language in, in Section 300AA13, which says that the, the Secretary uh, in, in B, that shows that the Secretary can rebunt the, the pr presumption of causation by showing that the child's condition is due to factors unrelated to the administration of that vaccine. 
When you just read that language, you definitely get the sense that the Secretary can rebut the presumption of causation by showing an alternative cause, but nothing in that would require the Secretary to establish the cause of the cause. And I think when you move down to the later references to idiopathic you should, and unknown, you should read them in light of that basic distinction. What must be known is the cause, not the cause of the cause. And the purpose of this idiopathic provision was to clear up an ambiguity that would otherwise have existed if they had just said uh, factors unrelated to the administration of the vaccine, because at that point it might have been the case that the Secretary could have said, I know the vaccine didn't cause it, I have evidence to prove it, I don't know what did, but a factor unrelated did. Does the medical profession use the word idiopathic in the same sense that we're using it here, relative, depending on which question we're asking? I think that's right. I, I can't say that 100 percent true, but I think that they would describe, they could easily de describe uh, it in either way, depending on the question you're trying to answer. Does your, does your sense of idiopathic, as, as, as you are saying the statute u uh, uses it, broad enough to, to um, cover this situation, uh, is, is a condition idiopathic when that condition is part of a recognized disease in and of itself, although we don't know what causes the disease? For example, if you had a, a, a vaccine, one of, the, one of the symptoms of which is people get, sometimes get forgetful after a couple of days, and someone with Alzheimer's disease had the vaccine and was indeed forgetful, uh, we wouldn't say, in effect, I suppose, that Alzheimer's disease causes forgetfulness. That's what we mean by Alzheimer's disease. So in that case, if, uh, if the Secretary came in with evidence that there was pre-existing Alzheimer's disease, uh, would, that, uh, would that be sufficient for rebuttal under your understanding of idiopathic? As long as you could show that the Alzheimer's pre-existed the, yeah. the administration of the vaccine, yes, because... So nothing is idiopathic, then, I guess, if, if it is a condition uh, which is sort of a, a recognized set of symptoms or conditions uh, within normal diagnostic practice. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and cancer would be a good example if you had a pre-existing cancer and you knew that led to uh, certain brain uh, problems, uh, mental retardation or whatever, even if the cancer was idiopathic in the sense that we don't know what caused the cancer, it's not idiopathic within the meaning of the statute because it is a specific factor that the Secretary is relying on to explain the child's condition the Secretary would not be saying in that case, I have no idea what caused this child's uh, condition. Uh, the, the one other reason that I would give in support of our interpretation, uh, other than uh, the statutory language that I relied on, is that, that the Court of Appeals interpretation is really inconsistent with the purposes of the compensation program. Because by a adding a second layer of causation. They're really requiring compensation in cases in which everyone ag would agree that the vaccine could not have ch caused the child's condition because something else did. Uh, that is not consistent with Congress's intent to limit compensation to vaccine-related injuries. If the Court has nothing else, I'll reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Gornstein. Uh, Mr. Moxley, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. On behalf of Maggie Whitecotton, we are not contending for a departure from the Court of Appeals decision, nor are we contending for a rule based on a generous interpretation of the statute, nor are we contending for an interpretation of the statute. We are contending for an enforcement of the express language of Section 300AA13A2A, found at page 3 of the petitioner's brief, which states that the term, quote, factors unrelated to the administration of the vaccine, unquote, does not include any idiopathic, unknown, hypothetical, or undocumentable cause, factor, injury, illness, or condition. On the subject of microcephaly, we do not believe that microcephaly qualifies as a first symptom of encephalopathy. Uh, 
Microcephaly is the measure of the outside of the head at its largest point. It's not a measure of the function of the brain inside. Any error in measurement is always in measuring it too small because the largest part of the head is what the doctor looks for. Microcephaly is not a diagnosis. It is not a disease any more than short stature is a symptom of disease or a disease itself. Isn't that a matter, counsel, for medical judgment? And weren't there expert witnesses who testified that that was a manifestation or symptom of the ultimate disability? Correctly stated, no medical authority would would consider it to be a symptom. Correctly stated, a, a medical authority would consider it to be a finding, and to call it a symptom is to is to is to be sloppy in the. Well, what did the experts the who testified in this case call it? I cannot recall, Your Honor, that the experts ever called it a symptom as such. In the context of the statute, the statute prescribes what symptoms of encephalopathy are. The symptoms of encephalopathy are set forth uh, extensively in uh, Section 14B3A, the aids and qualifications uh, to the interpretation of the vaccine injury table. And proof of an encephalopathy in table time at least, or even outside of table time, under that statute is very narrow and it and it focuses on specific medical findings such as EEG, such as uh, uh, bulging fontanelle. It even says that uh, uh, the classical signs of a DPT reaction are compatible with, with but not proof of an encephalopathy. So, are they exclusive? Are they recited to be exclusive? Okay. They are not exclusive, but uh, I don't. So, believe what difference does it make here whether it's whether it's called a symptom or anything else? Uh, as I understand it, the finding below was that there was a pathological condition of the brain, uh, which was evidenced by the small uh, the small head size, if you like. That is correct. But, but that there was that pathological condition before the vaccine was administered, and, and that's. That's what needs to be proven, isn't it? Well, what we believe this court should do is articulate a rule which will guide us in our practice. And we believe that the enforcement of the plain language of the statute sets forth a sequence of analysis that must be performed. We believe that what the special master did was skip a step in the sequence. The sequence in the statute is first 13A1A and then... 13A1B. 13A1A first calls for the inquiry as to whether or not the petitioner has proven a table case. In this case, the proof of this case, in the government's proof of this case, that the government used the table reaction as part and parcel of the proof of the pre-existing condition and the special master skipped over the table reaction to get into the causation inquiry before the special master made the findings that give us the benefit of the presumption. But that that wasn't the basis for the Court of Appeals ruling, was it? Uh, In a very strong sense, Your Honor, I believe it is. Well, the Court of Appeals, I understood the Court of Appeals to leave the findings of the special master undisturbed. I I agree that that happened, although the special master uh, did violence to the statute and the Court of Appeals was able to determine the case in that, uh, because of that legal error. We believe that uh, the Court of Appeals said what they can't do, but we believe that this court should set forth a rule telling us what they can do, and we believe that the the Are are you you defending the reasoning of the Court of Appeals? Oh, very much so, Your Honor. Well, but since the Court of Appeals dealt virtually not at all with the findings of the special master, I I don't see why you should concentrate on on the findings of the special master then. Oh, I I don't so much focus on the findings, Your Honor, as the process which the special master went through. And the special master skipped over the finding of the table entry. The, The special master 
found, parenthetically, as it were, that that technically the petitioners had put on a table case. Our <coughs> strongest argument is that the statute requires a focus on the table time injury. As implied by our statement of the questions presented, we believe that the Secretary must pr prove through a logical sequence of cause and effect that the so-called factor unrelated can be shown as the cause of the table injury. In this case, the Special Master's analysis was whether or not the so-called factor unrelated was consistent with the ultimate outcome. We believe it would be legally and logically inconsistent to allow the government to use the same facts which give rise to the presumption to also defeat the presumption. And the government's syllogism of causation in this case was that uh, this child had to have an organic brain syndrome because this child had a small head and this child had seizures and this child had cerebral palsy. Let's, let's look at a, A1A. That's what you say was not adequately done. It requires the showing of the matters required by Section 300AA11D1. Where is that? 11C1 is the, uh, is the statute uh, found at page 4 of the petitioner's brief. 11C1 merely sets forth the requirements of the petition that a you think at the documentation page four vaccine injury table? Is that is that what you're talking about? Uh, no, it, uh, the requirements of the petition. Uh, the 11 C one C little I says a petition shall contain documentation. Where, where are you reading from, Mr. I, uh, the statute is on. Page three, I'm sorry. Oh, page of the, three of the petitioner's the brief. Petitioner's brief, thank you. At page two. Page two is section eleven. It says the petition shall contain documentation that the person who suffered such injury sustained or had significantly aggravated any illness set forth in the vaccine injury table in the first symptom or manifestation of the onset or significant aggravation occurred within the time set forth in the table. Now, it's... Wait, and it goes on. And the first symptom or manifestation of the onset or of the significant aggravation of any such illness, disability, blah, 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 blah. Yes. Now, oh, the, don't leave that out. That's central to the case, isn't it? Well, the thing that I agree, yes, Your Honor, the, the, the matter that is central to the case is that what happened to Maggie Whitecotton in table time is the onset of a table condition, a, se a residual seizure disorder. Well, but that's the, de that's the debate. I mean, you, well, the, the special you, you simply just can't say that the special master uh, ignored, uh, ignored that provision. The, uh, the special master found, Your Honor, that, that the child technically, quote, unquote, technically satisfied the provisions of the table with regard to a, a residual seizure disorder. That is, the child's first seizure occurred in table time. But that has to be the onset of a significant aggravation. As a matter of law, uh, an, uh, a table injury ab initio in table time has to be something that satisfies the, the table. But the illness is not the seizure. Surely the seizure is a manifestation of an illness, isn't it? Is That's the seizure the illness? You, the, you, you the, ask what his illness is? He has encephalopathy. The acute encephalopathy right. was an injury, Your Honor. Right. Yes. What, what this requires is that the first symptom or manifestation of the onset or of the significant aggravation of the illness have occurred within the period after, after, after the vaccine yes, Your Honor. was administered. A, a, a residual seizure disorder is about. A residual seizure disorder is a table injury, and it is a specific table injury, and it is a specific species of table injury, and it's also the most specific well-known species of vaccine but, but injury. But counsel, the special master <clears throat> found that the child had not, in fact, suffered a residual seizure disorder. And you didn't petition for cert on that. I didn't think that was before us here. 
the CA Fed has not addressed that, has it? I just didn't think that argument was even here. Your Honor, I believe the CA Fed recognized that the seizure under the statute was clearly the onset, the first onset of symptomatic encephalopathy. And I believe that's cor- yeah, a correct. But you were order. just arguing this residual seizure disorder point. And I understood that that issue was not here. It was decided against you by the special master, and it isn't here. The special master did say that the child suffered a residual seizure disorder. The special master said that the child doesn't now suffer from a residual seizure disorder. What that doesn't take account of, Your Honor, is the fact that a residual seizure disorder and an encephalopathy are overlapping definitions, and a residual seizure disorder is in the table to satisfy by itself the requirements of the table to show a table time encephalopathy. The CA Fed showed that the child held that the child had suffered a table time encephalopathy, and I don't think anybody factually disputes that. Did the special master hear medical evidence? The special master did, Your Honor. The special master synthesized his findings from the literature, and we submit that they are not the type of finding to be given deference by an appellate court because they are logically absurd on their face. If 90 percent of the children with this head size had seizure disorders. But to repeat Justice O'Connor's point, my impression was the findings simply are not here. I agree that we're not arguing. But you keep criticizing them. I understand that, Your Honor. You agree, I take it, that there can be different kinds of symptoms evidencing the same cause, right? Evidencing the same disease. A disease can have more than one symptom, right? Many manifestations, yes, Your Honor. Okay. Now, suppose that a symptom of encephalopathy occurred before the administration of the vaccine. Yes, Your Honor. The presumption would not be satisfied then, would it? No, I don't agree with that, Your Honor. All right. I think that's what we're here to argue about. Yes. The issue is what — And I think it would assist the Court if you would argue that point because that's where you're in disagreement with the government, and that's why the case is here. Yes, Your Honor. The issue is whether or not an acute encephalopathy occurs within table time. If the child has a preexisting condition, the focus is whether or not that acute encephalopathy radically changes that child's future prognosis. If the encephalopathy does radically change that child's future prognosis, that child has had a significant aggravation. There is no way to trigger the significant aggravation presumption other than to have an acute encephalopathy in table time. And the sudden onset of seizures in table time and the diagnosis in the record by the treating physicians of a DPT encephalopathy satisfies that burden whether or not the child had a preexisting condition. Well, it's necessary to satisfy the burden, but it's not sufficient to satisfy the burden because you've also got to show that it was — that these symptoms were the manifestations, the first manifestations of the onset of the disease. And that in and of itself doesn't follow merely from introducing evidence that after the vaccination, the symptoms occurred. You've got to introduce something else, haven't you? I don't exactly agree with that, Your Honor. The issue is whether or not the disease, the alleged disease, necessarily includes the symptoms. All are in agreement that the alleged organic brain syndrome, which allegedly preexisted the table time reaction, all are in agreement that the table time reaction is not typical of organic brain syndrome. All are in agreement that seizures are not typical of organic brain syndrome. 
all are in agreement that cerebral palsy is not necessarily a manifestation they, of organic they may not brain typical, syndrome. But if, in fact, the evidence is that they were caused, and you don't also introduce some evidence to the effect uh, that there was no other manifestation of the disease prior to the vaccination, you haven't touched all the bases required in the statute, have you? I believe that I believe it gets back to 13A2A. Well, what's the answer to my question? The, the answer is that that there was that microcephaly is not a disease, and my, microcephaly might be a symptom of a disease. Chronic organic brain syndrome is not a disease either. It is an idiopathic disorder. It's totally speculated. Well, no one is claiming in this case that microcephaly is itself the disease. I mean, I, I, maybe I'm missing your point. I, believe the I don't think has. that responds either to the government's position or to my question. I believe I thought the disease was encephalopathy. And the government is simply saying uh, that, well, I strike what the government is saying. It seems to me that in order to, uh, to make the, the, the case that you have to make in the first instance, you would have to show not merely that there was some manifestation, some symptom of that following the vaccination, but that, in fact, it was the first symptom, that it was the symptom of an onset. And if you don't show that, you haven't, in fact, made out your prima facie case. Isn't that so? I don't believe that it has to be the first symptom in a significant aggravation case. The, uh, the legislative intent has a specific fact, a specific example in it of the aggravation of a seizure disorder, and all it requires is that the seizures become more frequent. So let's, say it's not a, let's leave aside the aggravation point. If you're just talking about the first symptom of the illness, then you would agree that you must show not only that there was a symptom within the table time after the vaccination, but that it was the first symptom. That is correct for, for what we call an onset case, Your Honor. Yes, I, I don't dispute that at all. Your position is that this is an aggravation case. Is that correct? Our position is that this case satisfies the table presumption for significant aggravation. So that if I, if I understand you correctly, and I, that even though there might have been a symptom of the disease before the vaccination, therefore it's not, therefore what happened after the vaccination is not the first symptom of the onset. Nevertheless, it's, I understand your position. There could be a, a serious aggravation caused by the vaccine, and the first symptom of that was the seizure within three days. That is correct, Your Honor. The, the so that if there, the, but that's not the theory of the Court of Appeals, or, or am I right on that? Well, it's both. Our theory is that we had ac uh, actually the first symptom of an encephalopathy as defined by the Act in table time after You, you make two arguments. One, you say the small head size is not a symptom. Yes. That's one of your arguments. And alternatively, you argue under the table that the seizure within three days or whatever the period was, was the first symptom of a serious aggravation. That is correct, Your Honor. Okay. That is correct. And what did the, uh, what did the finder of fact uh, conclude as to that? The finder Surely of that's a factual question. The finder of fact found that we technically fit the table, but that maybe Congress did not intend for the table to be literally applied. Can you point to the words in the finder of facts findings that say what you just summarized? There is a footnote. One would have to look in, in the petition for writ and have to look for the special master's decision. Page 27A of the Petition for Writ of Circularii.
The special master found that the, that the, that the child's condition satisfied the injury table, but that he did not have to find a table injury. And, and footnote four, uh, he said that his conclusion was based on a literal reading, however Congress may have intended something else. We believe that we need a rule that will govern us in our practice. We believe that we need a rule which puts the burden on the government after we satisfy our burden and does not put a burden on us to disprove the government's case in the satisfaction of our burden. If you need a rule, I mean, I thought this case came here on a slightly different theory. Imagine a baby is born. On the 3rd of February, it has a seizure. On the 3rd of March, it has another seizure. On the 1st of April, it gets some DPT vaccine. And on the 3rd, it has a third seizure. In that circumstance, I thought the statute makes clear that you have not, will not be able to recover. It doesn't there, You were not able in that situation to show what, I guess, the statute here in 11C requires, that, that, that you have to show that, uh, what are the exact words, that the, uh, that the first symptom I agree, or manifestation of the injury or the aggravation occurred within three days after the DPT vaccine. I agree, Your Honor. And yet the, the, the Fed Circuit seemed not to do that simple thing. Rather, they seemed to say that even if it were just the case I was describing, that that, that, that words wouldn't apply. That's what I thought the issue was initially. And then they seems to be mixed up with a different issue. Is, is this small head size like the pre-vaccine seizures or not like the pre-vaccine seizures? You're saying not. It wasn't a symptom or manifestation. And I guess initially the other side said it was. Am I right? You are. If not, the, the, explain why I'm not. Am I right? The, I am right? The, the thing that would have like to be, to be right. yes, Your Honor, the, the thing that would have to be added to your significant yeah. aggravation scenario yeah. in order for us to, in order for us to satisfy our case to show, uh, our burden to show a table case would be for that seizure after the shot to be the first of weekly seizures. Uh, there'd have to be some change. In the pure case that I imagine, everybody's in agreement. Is that right? I believe so, yes. And, and so then the question is, was it, was it somehow an aggravation, a symptom of a significant aggravation, the first symptom of a significant aggravation? Yes, sir. And if so, the statute seems to say if it's the first symptom of the significant aggravation, that's what it, the words it uses, then if you show that, you prevail. But then what's the legal argument? They're saying, in, as it comes up here, it seems as if the, there is a finding that it isn't the first symptom of a significant aggravation. There was a disease here that pre-existed, and there was no significant change. Those are fact findings. Your Honor, in the, there's a legal standard there that's implicit. The Office of Special Masters has articulated a presumption of normalcy for the child at the time of the shot if the child has had no overt symptoms of encephalopathy. And uh, if you look at the government's reply brief, they would put the burden on us of proving that the child was normal at the time of the shot. And, and we believe that we need a, a, an articulation of what this statute means in terms of what it means to our practice, and we believe that, that the court should find that this child has the right to be presumed to be normal if she had no symptoms of encephalopathy that fit the statutory well, the definition statute of encephalopathy. The statute says that you, the petitioner, have to demonstrate by a preponderance of evidence matters in the petition in 300-AA-11-C1. One of those matters is that the first symptom or manifestation of the significant aggravation occurred within three days after the DPT vaccine. So it would seem to say that you have to show that. So why, why, why wouldn't it? Well, the first symptom does not 
require a showing that the child was normal. The first symptom is the first symptom. The seizure in this case was indeed the first symptom. There were no symptoms. Microcephaly is not a symptom. Mr. Motley, may I come back to Justice Ginsburg's question about what the finder of fact had to say about, about aggravation? You referred us to page 27A and footnote 4. I have read it now three times, and I find not a word about aggravation. It says nothing about aggravation. The, the special master went into the question of comparing the ultimate condition, consistency of ultimate conditions. This is the closest you can find to a finding by the special master that this was a significant aggravation. No, Your Honor. Page 27A. No, well, Your Give Honor. me another page. The, that is I, the I don't find a mention of aggravation on page 27. I agree. I, well, then why did you cite that, that page in response to Justice Ginsburg's question? I believe that she was asking me if I, was, if I could point out whether or not the court had addressed the issue of a table injury, Your Honor. Oh, I thought it was aggravation. I believe that. Uh, well, I'll ask you. Aggravation. What did the uh, What did the finder of fact have to? You're, you're contending this was an aggravation. Where the, did the finder of fact find an aggravation? The finder of fact used the Massasi test as articulate as extensively argued in my brief, uh, which was to compare the ultimate condition uh, of the of the speculative. Uh, compare the ultimate condition to the outcome from the speculative organic brain syndrome because the special master focused on the final outcome rather than on the table injury the special master was able to find that the causation of the ultimate outcome was from the speculative hypothetical pre-existing condition I think what you're saying is not at all uh, not at all properly. Not, not at all. The, the, the finder of fact did not find it, any aggravation. No. He addressed aggravation at page 36A ah. of that same, uh, in that same opinion. All right. Uh, a, a comparison of the condition prior to the administration of the vaccine uh, and, uh, and an exercise of deciding whether or not uh, that condition was consistent with the current condition. If you believe that the child is brain injured prior to the to the shot, there's a way of saying that the ultimate condition is always consistent. We're, we're, we're on 36A. Does the special master talk factually about aggravation? I don't believe the special master did. I don't believe the special. Did the special master anywhere make any factual finding that there was an aggravation? Yes or no? N no. Found that there was no aggravation. The, the issue to us is whether or not the table condition itself is an aggravation. And the special master's analysis is whether or not the ultimate condition is an aggravation. And we believe that it strips us of the statutory presumption of compensability. Mr. Boxley, in answer to the question that was asked, I think that there was something that the backbinder said, and he said, this is on page 43A. No significant aggravation of Maggie's underlying brain disorder was manifested within three days following the administration of the DPT vaccine. So he made a finding that there was no significant aggravation. I, I agree, Your Honor. I believe that, it, that the onset of a residual seizure disorder in, in Mr. Moxley. We've been questioning you several times about findings of aggravation. You answered me just a moment ago that the special master made no finding. Now Justice Ginsburg points out that he made a very express finding. How can you stand up there at the rostrum and give these totally inconsistent answers? I'm sorry, Your Honor. I don't well, you mean, should be. I don't mean to confuse the court. Well, you, I, you, you had, perhaps you haven't confused us so much. It's just made us gravely wonder, you know, how well prepared you are for this argument. Your Honor, it is our assertion that the onset of a residual seizure disorder in table time is a Your significant aggravation as a matter of law. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Goinstein, you have 11 minutes remaining. Just two quick points. 
Um, one is that the Court of Appeals did not reach the question of significant aggravation. It decided this case is an onset case, uh, and that's clear from page 5A uh, of our — to the petition for a writ of certiorari, where they quote the language from the table that refers to onset. It's correct, is it not, that your opponent does rely in part on it being an aggravation case? Yes, and I, I was going to say that the special master found uh, that there was no significant aggravation. There is a discussion of the evidence uh, in support of that. But the theory of the special master was you compare the condition at the time of the vaccination with the condition in the long run, as I understand. I would say that that was part of the analysis. That and, and the opponent's argument is that the, what the seizure itself was an aggravation, isn't that right? That's their theory. And, and that's I, what the table, that's the, that's the theory of the table under his view of the statute. The, the, his theory was that the seizure was a manifestation of a significant aggravation. And the special master addressed that and said that it wasn't because... Uh, the seizures were very brief and transient, that after the seizures in the table period, the, the child returned to her pre-vaccine uh, neurological status, that she continued to progress uh, at the basically uh, at a slow but sure pace, and that she ultimately... Is it correct that, this, that the seizure, this was the first seizure the child ever had? That is the first seizure the child had, yes. And, and so at least there's an argument that hasn't been resolved by the courts below as to whether that might itself satisfy the requirements of the table. Well, two of the three courts below resolved it, but the Court of Appeals did not. Right. I, I would say the special master in the Court of Federal Claims. And that issue is open on remand. But Mr. Gernstein, I think, has raised a point which he'd like guidance on in this, because suppose that the child has the seizure within three days after the DPT vaccine is administered. And suppose that really is the first seizure. And the purpose of this statute is so you don't have to go into a long thing about causation. You don't have to go into a long thing about whether there was some other mysterious thing that caused it. Well, you could, if on, on your interpretation, have to go into that long thing because if mysterious disease X that nobody knows about, in fact, it caused something, arguably, prior to the administration of the vaccine, like a head twisting or something, then it would be open to the government to say, oh, you see, that was really the first symptom. In which case, by the back door, you'd bring in all these other mysterious idiopathic or whatever causes. I think, I'm not positive, but I think that's the kind of thing that was bothering you. And, and I think that that's uh, the sort of thing he'd like an interpretation about. So what would we say about that? I, I'm not sure I follow the hypothetical. Well, I mean, there's a mysterious idiopathic cause, some weird thing. And the government wants to say, this weird thing is the cause. Okay, I th now, they're forbidden by the statute to bring that up, but they might say, wait a minute, there was a first symptom. The first system was a neck twisting or something. Well, even I think be even before. I think there has to be medical evidence that, that what is There is. There's a doctor who... And, and that, that to say that that is a manifestation of encephalopathy. And if that's true, then the child has not demonstrated the prima facie case. And then you turn to the question of significant aggravation. And you look to see whether the seizure is a manifestation of something that a marked change in the condition of the You could bring that in even with the weird, mysterious, idiopathic mystery disease. You see, that's what's worrying him, the weird, idiopathic mystery disease, which had its first symptom, according to Dr. X, before the vaccine was administered. You could, but I, I'm, I'm not sure I see what the problem with that is when the statute, the terms of the statute say that the, the claimant has to show that the first symptom or manifestation of encephalopathy occurred after a vaccine administration. And if there is a pre-existing manifestation of encephalopathy and there is medical evidence to that effect, it's just that we don't know what caused the encephalopathy, then there's no presumption because the natural uh, nat the natural uh, implication of the evidence is that the child already had something, and then the statute says you look to whether there's significant aggravation. Mr. Gornstein, I, assume. I'm go sorry. ahead. Just, just I want to follow up one point on the aggravation. Mm -hmm. Supposing that it is true that if, if three days at, within three days after an aggravation, the child has the first seizure the child has ever had, and at that point in time, that would be one symptom of a serious aggravation. 
Now, it may turn out over the, if you look at it a year later that there never was a serious aggravation. This would have happened anyway. But is it not true that looking at it as of the period 48 hours after the vaccination, the table condition is satisfied if it is a symptom of something that she may in fact not have? I think that what the statute says is it has to be a manifestation of a significant aggravation, which means it has to be a symptom, a manifestation of a significant aggravation. Right. And the, the significant aggravation it's a is a symptom defined. or manifest symptom or manifestation. Or of, this, or of the significant aggravation. It seems to me that, it seems to me, in other words, the statute could be satisfied by someone who's perfectly healthy if they had the wrong symptom. If it was a man, if someone could say, testify, based on that manifestation, that that was a manifestation of a marked deterioration in the child's condition, because significant aggravation is defined in page 6 of our brief, uh, 300AA334, the term significant aggravation means any change for the worse in a pre-existing condition which results in markedly greater disability, pain, or illness accompanied by substantial deterioration of health. So you have to be able to say that that seizure was a manifestation of that. That is, that it was a manifestation of a change for the worse in a, a pre-existing condition which results in markedly greater disability, pain, or illness. And the special master carefully examined that and found that it weren't, was not. Seizures can be entirely benign. They can be something that, that is a manifestation of significant aggravation. They can be a manifestation of something in between benign and significant aggravation. It seems and, to me that if they're a symptom, that's all the statute requires. And that's what, that's what, that's what your opponent argues here on this, in his alternative theory. On, the, on significant aggravation? Yeah. Well, I think it has to, I, I would repeat my argument that it's not, it's not enough for it to be a symptom. It has to be a, submit, a, a manifestation or a symptom of a significant aggravation. The word manifestation is in, is in the disjunctive compared to symptom, symptom or manifestation. That's right. And it was neat, the special master found it was neither in this case. May I try out two alternatives sure. to see if I understand your position? Assume Justice Bry is hypothetical. First seizure occurs, whatever it was, a day after the vaccination. Prior to the vaccination, there has been head twisting, of some, neck twisting of some sort. The medical evidence, uh, the government presents medical evidence uh, in the first case, the first hypothetical, uh, by a doctor who says, in my judgment, uh, there probably was a relationship between the seizure and the pre-existing neck twisting. Uh, that is not a standard syndrome, uh, but I think that's what we're ultimately going to find. So for that reason, I posit a cause of the seizure, which is not the vaccination. That's hypothetical number one. Hypothetical number two, the doctor says, uh, there is in fact a recognized syndrome or condition in which seizures and neck twisting go together. You get neck twisting, you know you're going to get a seizure or there's going to be a very high probability of a seizure later on. This conjunction of symptoms is, is readily observed and, and understood as kind of a standard diagnostic category. And we call that category disease X. Disease X has nothing to do with vaccinations. You would have gotten the seizure anyway because you had the neck twisting. As I understand your position, in the first case, the, uh, the claimant would have made out at least uh, a, a, a case for the presumption. It would, it would not have been affected uh, by this hypothesis of an idiopathic cause, which nobody but the doctor testifying knows about. In the second case, the presumption would not apply because, in fact, uh, no reasonable finder of fact uh, would conclude, if they accepted the doctor as telling the truth as a, as a, and, and as a competent medical expert, no reasonable finder of fact would, in fact, would conclude uh, that, this, that, the, that the seizure was, in fact, uh, a first manifestation of an aggravation. Is that your position? Justice Souter, I, I'm not sure I agree with, with that description. Okay, well, correct me then. I, 
I think that as long in the first case, uh, even if you don't know what caused it, if you can say this is a manifestation of encephalopathy, and that is the table condition that the claimant is seeking compensation for, and the person doesn't... Well, you mean exactly you don't know what causes encephalopathy. That's right. But there is always seizures that go with encephalopathy, but the, but and you have evidence of pre-existing encephalopathy. But that's the key, is encephalopathy, because that's what the table says you can recover for, either the onset of encephalopathy or a significant aggravation of encephalopathy. That's the key condition. And so when you go back and say, what happened before table time, the question you're asking under the first part of our analysis is, was there a symptom or manifestation of encephalopathy? Not of head jerking or anything else. It, it could be, you get nowhere with head jerking. On the second part of our analysis, if you could show that head jerking is some sort of defined condition that causes uh, ultimately encephalopathy, then you would win as a fa on a factor unrelated, even if the first symptom or manifestation of that condition occurred after the administration of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference between our two theories. What about the residual seizure disorder point? I thought it was decided by the master that that was not established. That's right. The special master found that there was not a residual seizure disorder because the one of the requirements is that the effects last for a period of more than six months, and the special master found that that was not so uh, with respect to residual seizure disorder. Thank uh, you, Mr. Gorenstein. The case is submitted. <clears throat>